0: From our studios
1: in New York, Chicago, and London, this is a Rail Group On Air special podcast series The Coronavirus and the Rail Industry.
2: Welcome to this special edition of Rail Group On Air. It's our COVID 19 series. I'm William C. Antuono, editor in chief of Railway Age. I am very pleased to welcome three very special guests. We have Eric Starks, who is chairman and CEO of FTR Transportation Intelligence, Todd Trunowski, vice president, Rail and Intermodal at uh, FTR, and our own David Nehas, president of Railroad Financial Corporation and Railway Age's financial editor. Uh, just about a month ago, we were in La Quinta, California, for Rail Equipment Finance 2020, when this pandemic. Just started to hit, and the world has changed. The world certainly has changed uh, uh, dramatically or drastically uh, since then. So we're we're going to get into it in just a moment, um, talking about how this has affected the uh, the rail traffic and also the rail equipment uh, finance market. But first, um, Eric and Todd, if you could just uh, briefly describe what uh, you guys do at FTR.
3: Oh, Bill! Thanks for having us, and uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to join join the group. Uh, so this is this is Eric. I am uh, obviously, as you mentioned, the chairman and CEO at uh, FTR Transportation Intelligence. Our job is to understand what's happening within the economy. How does that impact the freight marketplace? What does that mean for the carriers? What's happening with the railroads, the truckers? How does that impact their customers, the shippers? And then ultimately, ultimately, what does that mean for demand for equipment? Uh, how many trucks do you need, uh, trailers, and and rail cars in in the system? So we have a holistic view of kind of looking at it at a thirty thousand foot viewpoint, and trying to make sense of the world, and then diving down into the different different segmentations and uh, to that, and that's where Todd is is a great expert at looking at what's happening within. Within the rail and intermodal space, so Todd,
0: in terms of what I do at FTR, you know, we're focused around, you know, looking at volumes, doing the forecast of those volumes, trying to give people a sense of where the market's headed, which over the last month has gotten, it has gotten incredibly murky, you know. But certainly, given what the order of the economy is going, given the freight markets, we can make some some intelligent judgments about where we're where we're headed and where we're. You know and, and where we're going and try to give people a sense of, of where things where things need to be and what they need to do to plan their business around uh, around where things are headed.
2: David, Railroad Financial Corporation, Rail Equipment Finance Conference. Tell us about it.
1: Yes, Railroad. thanks, Bill, thanks for, for having me. Uh, the Railroad Financial Corporation is an advisory firm. We help lessees, car owners and investors in the rail market. Uh, Work on understanding the market better, uh, trying to understand what the four walls of rail finance look like, and trying to acquire or uh, whether through ownership or lease the equipment they need for working in their businesses on a more cost effective basis. We do a lot of work for end users and a lot of work for lessors and investors in the assets so that they can uh, monetize and improve their returns and, and really try to deliver as much savings as possible to the bottom line.
2: We uh, just saw the AAR traffic figures for the week ending, uh, I believe it was the 25th of March or or thereabouts. Uh, uh, They're not pretty. Uh, Not pretty at all. I see, Todd, you're shaking your head there. Uh, uh, What's going on here?
0: Ugly is about the only way to describe the the rail traffic this week. You know, for a while there it had been, been holding up pretty well you know we look at a metric called economically sensitive freight here at ftr because we pull out the coal we pull out the ag we pull out the petroleum products and try to look at just those sectors that are more economically sensitive more economic more closely tied to the underlying economy and it had held up until the last the last couple of weeks and now it has just fallen off a table and there have been a couple of big drivers of that predominantly the automotive industry uh, this week, automotive volumes tumbled about six thousand carloads a week, and that flowed through into the metals market. The metals and metal products segment took a significant touchdown this week. Petroleum products took a significant touchdown this week because of the declines we've seen in the uh, the energy complex. It's been uh, it really started to flow into the carload markets uh, this week. Intermodal had been there for a while, as you would expect because it's more import-driven, uh, closely related to the extension of Shutdowns around the Lunar New Year with Chinese factories having less goods coming in over the last, call it six weeks at intermodal. But in carload, we've really just started to see it in these last couple of weeks, and it, it, it's an ugly picture. And based on everything we're hearing, the way we're locking down the economy, uh, it's probably going to be there for a while.
3: Yeah, no, I, it, I, it, to the points that that Todd Todd made, it's um, it's hard to see how the market turns in the next several weeks and so what we've been trying to do is look at what the impact is on on the freight transportation sector as it relates to the Mm COVID-19 and clearly it has been hurting rail and we don't anticipate that to see any noticeable changes until at least May so April is pretty much already shot uh, and when we start looking at what the underlying manufacturing looks like we 're going to see manufacturers continuing to shut down more and more as we start seeing travel restrictions. we start seeing uh, people asked to please stay at, stay at home and social distancing all of that and I think we really see April become kind of the point where finally it sets in in businesses. Um, finally, just say I'm 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 out. One of the things that's been fascinating is we kind of look though at what the trucking market's doing because we're trying to understand the play between truck and rail. And what we found recently <clears throat> is that truck demand has held up fairly well up until now. But that tends to be more about moving stock around the country and trying to f- fulfill uh, shortages in different different areas. For example, we're seeing pricing going into new york and into the eastern um, states noticeably high but we also haven't seen a corresponding increase in demand as it relates to number of loads going going in there so there is this somewhat of a disconnect being that's being driven by by that marketplace that will slow down over the next probably month a month and a half if not sooner and so it will start to join with what's happening for rail.
2: So there is uh, some freight rail traffic moving over to the trucking side then?
3: It's, it's less that it's moving away from rail. It's more the function of it, the stuff that needs to be moved is, is a truck move. And so we're just mm-hmm. not seeing the goods that traditionally have gone by rail moving. And so that's that's ultimately where where it comes down to because usually a lot of the goods that are getting moved right now tend to be more consumer type of goods for truck getting mm-hmm. into these particular areas. Traditionally, we would see that in an import container and that would come by intermodal, but that just has not happened up till now. And that's all being driven by the impact of the global uh, slowdown due to COVID-19.
2: What well, what are we seeing in terms of international uh uh, intermodal, specifically containers. things in China seem to be getting back to some uh, level of, of normality. Uh, and the AAR is saying, well we may we, we may have plateaued or we may have hit bottom and now we should start to come up. Well, what do you think?
0: It, on the international intermodal side, you know we are seeing factories ramp up. Uh, But it's going to be a slow ramp up in China. You know, it's very sector specific. I was looking at something just last week where depending on particularly what sector of manufacturing you're talking about in China, uh, it's very different rates of ramp up. And it's a long supply chain from when those factories ramp up to when you actually get things on the water and then bring them into ports. So it's going to be another probably four or six weeks before you really see that reflected in import numbers and intermodal loadings. So, you know, we may have hit the bottom, but we're not going to, we're not going to bounce off of it. We're going to hang here at the bottom for a while. We would expect uh, until those, those volumes get here. And then once they get here, we're going to have to deal with the question of what is demand in the U S like for those goods. There's been an awful lot of demand destruction with folks losing their jobs, with consumer confidence being low, mm-hmm. uh, with folks being locked down. People are out there buying, but they're buying consumer staples. They're buying food. They're buying, they're not buying uh, DVD players. They're not buying TVs. They're not buying dishwashers. They're not buying those kind of goods that move uh, typically intermodally. Yeah. And so
2: they and some- and and on the automotive side. They're, they're not buying new cars and the factories have, uh, have, uh, have shut down
0: no they're not making any of those big discretionary purchases and yeah. on the car front you know we a month ago when we were out at REF we were talking about 17 17.1 million cars sold this year now we're down about 16 2 16 3 you know a, a million vehicles in a 17 million vehicle market it may not sound like a lot but it's a has a huge impact on production and mm-hmm. on the input products that go into those vehicles, the tier one and tier two suppliers, it, it rolls all the way through the system. And we already didn't have a catalyst for new vehicle demand. If everybody's locked down, they're not driving. They're not commuting back and forth to work. So they're not wearing out that fleet as quickly as you might expect either. And so right. we could see this level of, of automotive volume stick around for a while.
3: So hey Todd, before you get too, too far off, off topic of what you said earlier, you said people aren't buying CD players. Who buys a CD player
1: anymore, man?
3: You're killing <laughs>
2: <me>. <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, <laughs>
3: um, but let me let me wait, add on. Wait, you. let's
1: try an iPod. Oh, sorry.
3: <laughs> yes, yes. So <laughs> showing my age. Amen. You are you are old at heart. The uh, the one thing too on the import side is because you still have a, It's not all consumer driven goods. And i think we tend to think about containerized freight as just a consumer good it has a significant amount of manufactured components in there that are going into other processes processes so this um, with the shutdown that we anticipate further shutdown of manufacturing in the u.s as we move through april they're not going to be ordering that stuff because if it comes in too early, they, they just don't need it. So those orders aren't going to probably happen until the latter part of April as they start trying to plan into May and into June. So I, we just, I just don't see that t- that portion of the intermodal coming back until at least the latter part of Q, Q2 at their mm-hmm. list.
0: You know, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, everything that moves in a 20-foot container is a good going into the manufacturing sector, which increasingly is shut down by these stay-at-home orders. So
2: let's, uh, let's talk about the railroads themselves. Uh, you know, how are they responding to this loss of traffic within the landscape of, uh, uh, PSR, pre- uh, precision scheduled railroading, which they some of them are, you know, have it down pat like CN, I would think, but others are still kind of feeling their way through Norfolk Southern Union Pacific. Uh, BNSF is not doing it, at least not yet. Uh, uh, your thoughts on
0: that? Well, I, I think the carriers are going to continue to do what they, they've done and be very aggressive on the cost side of the equation. They're going to try to pull resources out of the system, whether that's headcount, whether that's locomotives. You know, trying to be as efficient as possible to pull the to pull cost out. Now, that works for the moment. Where the railroads could find themselves in a difficult position is when volumes come back. You know, is there? You know, do they have enough resources in place? To be able to meet that demand when it comes back, and how quickly, you know, can they ramp up to meet that demand when it ultimately does come back?
2: So, whereas where when you say ramping up, are you talk? Are we talking about uh, uh, bringing people back who have been furloughed? Are we talking about uh, reactivating locomotives, putting cars back into service?
0: Exactly, all World of free. that. All of that as the freight market comes back, which is not going to happen. Quickly, but it is going to happen and the railroads need to make sure they have enough assets available to them to be able to meet that demand.
1: Yes, let's put it into context, Bill. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking about autos and auto parts and the supply chain associated with that. Uh, 15% of carloads loads uh, handle automotive uh, products and automobile parts. And so that's that's one stat. And then in addition, there were heading into the crisis about 8,000 locomotives parked in North America. So you know the railroad's first reaction, which is an appropriate one, is that as freight volumes continue to decline, as Todd suggested again, you know, we're, we're going to need resources when the ramp up comes comes back. But their first reaction as volumes decrease is going to be to furlough assets and furlough people. And it takes time to get those assets back into the supply chain in order to get them moving again. So if we already had 8,000 locomotives down, how many more are gonna go down into storage in order to deal with the with the lowering uh, freight volumes or the decreasing freight volumes? And then how prepared will the railroads be to ramp up quickly in order to, to, to grab that resurgent business when it comes back to the foreground? Well,
2: typically, typically uh, under normal circumstances, and these circumstances, as we well know, are anything but normal, uh, it's difficult to uh, bring back furloughed people because, in the interim, some of these folks have maybe gone out and found other jobs, and they won't come back. Uh, in the, uh, they they may they're not as inclined to to wait it out uh, for a few months in this environment when when businesses are shutting down, people are, are losing people are losing their jobs. Unfortunately, uh, maybe the the furloughed railroad employees will—they—they uh, they won't have another job to go to, and then they'll—we'll will be able to bring them back much uh, much quicker. And uh, because when you bring new people on, of course, there's there's a learning curve, there's training, certification. Uh, what what do you think in this environment? Is it a little different?
3: Bill, your premise is is correct that given the way the economy is behaving right now, everybody's going to be furloughing people they are not, they're not going to in essence uh, leave and then decide to take a job with another company that's just not, that's not realistic right now. so from that standpoint the railroads can be more reactive this time. Uh, the bigger issue then is going to be able to make sure that those employees once they are brought back that they are in the right location and in the right job and that's where it becomes a a noticeable unknown right now, and when we start looking at regional variations of where freight is likely to pick up and move, um, I think it's going to be, there's going to be some disconnect in that, and it's going to be kind of a moving target for the railroads to better understand that as we start to see, to see a recovery, so it's, it's not just a done deal that you spring them all back and all, all is right with the world. So it's mm-hmm. going to be somewhat of a struggle and it'll be a learning curve. So, David, let, uh, let me throw some back to you.
1: Yeah, I, I was just going to echo the same sentiment, Eric, is, is that I think in the current environment, you know, we were moving into this crisis, an unemployment rate of about 3% or just under, just above 3%. And you know, I know you'll probably get into at some point the number of jobless claims that we're starting to see. I think there aren't opportunities for those furloughed workers, even if they ultimately get to be terminated, to go and find jobs immediately to replace the salary in the same revenue bracket. And so I think the railroads are having an easier time bringing back staffing, but no matter what, it's still a time consuming endeavor.
2: So the other factor here is wall street. And uh, of course uh, the, you know, they're, they're, uh, perspective on uh, on the railroads so is do you see Wall Street changing its perspective uh, on the railroads as a result of the crisis
0: no I mean I, I certainly don't I think that Wall Street has uh, you know has set its goals for the railroads and their management and I think we're going to see that continue and so I think there's going to be continued pressure on the railroads to to deliver returns and whether that's through cutting costs whether that's through raising revenue The one cover that the railroads are going to have is that with diesel coming down, with the cost of materials coming down, you know, rail inflation that they talk about a lot, pricing above rail inflation, that rail inflation number is going to be lower than it otherwise would be because of those reductions in materials and reductions in diesel. And so that's going to allow them to take less of a price increase than they otherwise would have to cover uh, their inflation plus pricing targets. Uh, but I don't think I don't think Walter's going to give the carriers a pass just because of a downturn. I think Walter's going to continue to uh, expect to see their returns.
1: Actually, I had some time to think about that that thought, Bill, and yeah. uh, I want to echo what Todd said. But I think, in fact, the railroads are even in a in a worse position than the rest of the industrial world because they're an essential business and they need to continue moving freight uh, for for the health of of the nation and. Uh, even more perilous as not identified that the price of fuel, which is the second largest capital expense of a railroad is going to enable them to acquire additional business or to book additional business and maintain their OR because fuel is so favorable. And I'm sure they're doing their best to hedge diesel in the current environment, mm-hmm. considering the, the price metrics. But the reality is that, that that's going to be a short term fix. And so, I don't, you rarely see rail transportation contacts that have a variable component attached absolutely to the price of fuel. Usually there's a pass through of a surcharge, but not a direct correlation to a spot price for fuel. So the railroads could acquire the business now using all the metrics and the tools available to them to keep it in favor of a good OR, and then lose that advantage as fuel starts to rise again. And so the railroads could actually find themselves getting a little whipsawed by, by the commodification of, of OR in through the Wall Street market if they lean too heavily on discounted fuel as a way of bolstering earnings in OR in the short term.
2: Let's, uh, let's move over to the uh, car builder uh, impact. David, uh, what, what are we seeing here uh, in terms of projected revisions to, uh, to new car builds for this year?
1: So, uh, you know, when we were at Rail Equipment Finance, we were, we were talking about numbers in the mid-30s in terms of delivered units for the calendar year. Uh, I, I felt like there was some optimism baked into that number. And now with this uh, crisis, what you're seeing is that anybody that had the, the possibility of thinking about demand for new cars, unless you have a project that is already engaged, for which you absolutely is committed to needing new assets, the likelihood is that there's going to be existing cars available, and it's really going to put pressure on on car pricing as well as on demand for new cars and, and the order book. So uh, inquiries for new orders are decreasing, and certainly the number of delivered units throughout the calendar year is going to decrease
2: substantially. Mm-hmm. At uh, at R E F twenty twenty, we uh, we were looking at uh, delivery numbers. I think between I think maybe thirty five thousand cars. Is that is that correct? Does my memory serve me? But uh, yeah,
1: Eric, wanted wanted to uh, jump yeah. in on that one.
0: Yeah, you know when, when we were out at R E F, we were talking about you know expecting about a thirty seven thousand uh, car build this year. Now, when we look at it relative to where we are with the the deterioration we've seen in the economy and the freight markets, we're down in the low 20s. We're down about 23,000, you know, preliminarily. And that's a huge jump. That that is a huge decline. That's a huge difference for the industry. I think you're going to see builders try to slow production lines to try and keep their workforce intact. But I also think you're going to see, uh, you know, folks have a really hard time, you know, placing new orders, refilling that backlog, you know, because there really isn't with the freight markets and we talked about it off the top. Some of the markets that were uh, particularly challenged, there's just not a lot of reason for folks in the marketplace to go out and place new car orders right now. And when you think about some of the, the car types that are in the backlog, they are particularly energy focused and energy related. And with the deterioration we've seen in the energy complex over the last month, uh, it puts those those car types at risk you can't you can't move crude profitably right now if you're moving it out of Canada you know the the discount the other day from Canada to the Gulf Coast was sixteen dollars the crude price outright is twenty dollars so that that producers you know getting four dollars a barrel and then has to pay nine dollars to ship it to the Gulf Coast there's no reason for them to invest in that transportation mode or in equipment to facilitate those moves right now and so, you have a lot of pressure in the system in a rail car space that already was oversupplied. We've kind of put a
3: line in the sand to say here's what we think this year's gonna do, and here what next year is, is gonna do. Um, I I could easily see us getting into the teens given what we have seen uh for, for new car new car builds. Uh, traditionally the the reason why you don't go lower than that is you kind of have this floor of pieces of equipment that need to get built. You have specialty equipment. You have different specking for some of the equipment. That is really what we're talking about at this point in time. We're not talking about a traditional car build where you're going to be adding to your fleet. You are literally just going to be looking at replacing those cars that you have to replace during the next you know, 18 18 months. Mm-hmm. So, this is so I do see that there is some downside risk here. It'll be interesting to see how the builders react as we get into Q2. As we look at 2020, though, in total, the first quarter is still going to be decent. And so, we're really talking about a very anemic environment for the next three quarters to get us through the rest of 2020. So, don't uh, I, I want to make sure that the listeners don't go, oh, wow. You're looking in the, in the low, mid to low 20s, the number, you know, is going to be lower type of a thing. That's, that's already baked in. So if you look at it on an annualized basis, yes, you're already looking at things below 20,000 on an annualized basis for, for looking at those, those last three quarters of, of the year.
2: Mm-hmm. David, what's the impact on the uh, equipment leasing market for both lessors and lessees? Uh, we, what you're going to end up seeing
1: is so, so you all the factors that are coming to play are really gonna, are just going to total negative effect on lease rates, and that, that's really unfortunate. But you know, as you again have decreasing volumes of, of rail loadings, and you're going to have more cars in the system, you're going to have increased velocity because of those decreased loadings. So you're going to have a decrease in overall demand for assets. Obviously, the railroads aren't going to move empty cars around just for the just for the sake of moving cars around. So all the factors together combined are really gonna drive prices across all segments low. You know, Todd mentioned petroleum and the difficulties of moving petroleum by, by tank car right now. Uh, with oil being $20 a barrel, it's gonna impact fracking. Fracking is gonna impact sand. It's gonna impact, uh, eth- the oil price is gonna impact ethanol as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, The grain market is probably the best and most stable market ahead for the short term because people will still continue to need to eat. The price of scrap is falling through the floor. It's going to be down below $200 a car. Again, it's going to disincentivize companies to continue to scrap units. Coal is going to be under stress. We've discussed that intermodal is going to be under stress. Uh, you know, I guess paper products could be another market that, that holds some stability just because of the, the number of deliveries and the, the need for cardboard and, and
2: toilet paper. Very, um,
1: intimately aware <laughs> with the rush for toilet paper, right? For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think overall that the, the rail car market going to really struggle with excess capacity as well as decreasing fundamental demand. So if you have assets, you might keep them on as long as you can get a lower rate. But the idea that you're going to return cars or take on additional capacity in the short term is really going to be a foreign concept for the near term.
2: So, uh, so the the, uh, the pathway of the future uh, is there timing for a return to to normalcy? Does freight move back to the to the railroads post crisis? If it moves away from rail during it, uh, is there uh, is there any sort of uh, timelines? Anybody thinking about yeah. when things could return to normal, whatever normal is going to be?
3: Let me let me talk about that a tad bit in in this environment normal is hard to quantify to your exact to your exact point so what we are anticipating is the last time we saw normal was probably around january you know things started to stabilize at that point in time so we don't anticipate that we get back to those levels until uh the middle part of next year and so that that is kind of difficult. That's basically putting everything on pause for, for almost a year, a year and a half. Uh, that's, that's hard for the industry to deal with. And so this f- will feel, in a lot of ways, like what they felt during the Great, during the great Recession. However, what's different is that the Great Recession, um, to get back to those type of levels was significantly longer. So at the front end, I think you're going to get a lot of people feeling a certain way, but the recovery is much faster than um, than I think a lot of people will anticipate.
2: So when is normal coming back?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it depends on, on what part of normal do you mean? You know, if you're talking about when can we actually get back out of our homes and, and start to, to go back and, and, and see our, our friends and our colleagues again in offices, you know, that's probably you know, a June a June or July timeframe, depending on where you live. Now, there's going to be a lag between when that shows up in freight demand. Folks are not just going to immediately go out and, and spend money and have demand for goods. That's going to take a little bit of time to flow through the system. Uh, if you think about when normal is going to come back for freight flows, it's probably a 2021 endeavor just because people are going to have to build back their purchasing power again. If they've been furloughed, they're not going to, as soon as they're not furloughed, go out and buy a car or go out and buy a dining room set. It's going to take time to get to those purchases. Mm-hmm. So from from a freight flow perspective, it's a 2021 event. I
1: think that's true, Bill. I, I think if you want to try to put it in some kind of interim sort of uh, stage, you think that you know if we are kind of lucky, if things roll the right way for us, and this doesn't extend, you know, through the midsummer. That maybe six to seven months from now, consumption has returned to 75% of what it was in January, and that, you know, maybe we hope it gets back to, you know, something close to 100% a year from now, and then, as, as Eric and Todd have said, you know, back fully to 100% you know middle of next year. And I think that's really the best you can hope for. You know, the, the problem is that, that there's new bad news every day. So you know, today, Florida and Pennsylvania have both uh, done shelter-in-place laws. There are rail car manufacturing facilities that are closed. All of the there, – there are chemicals facilities that were being put together that have gone on hiatus and that are going to push back the startup of those facilities. So So all of that combined creates a, a really difficult – and a bumpy landscape for us to try to imagine you know when normal really comes back in 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 full for for people that had jobs and and were leading comfortable lives i think it, that's a real challenge
3: i keep looking at it in the buckets of business versus consumer And the consumer is going to have a hard time buying things like automobiles. And I think that's been brought up because of of the price point. And if there's uncertainty in the market, you just don't spend that that type of money. But businesses have pretty much said for now that they're going to just stay away and that they are going to um, put their uh, purchasing on hold for the moment and see what happens. And so things like structures uh, and then business investment, those get really hit, and the railroads, because they do such a good job of moving bulk commodities, when you have businesses not investing in things like uh, structures and in some of the, the, the materials of, of what they need to continue to move their business along, the railroads it, take, it, take it on the chin. And then finally, I, I would agree with David's comments, too, about things like scrap pricing, scrap steel pricing. That's a big problem, going to be a big problem for the industry because you have so many cars just sitting idle. You know, you want to be able to, to tell it, um, you know, hey, I'd like to scrap these. But you're just not. You're just going to pay to store them for now. And, and that is really uncertain of when can you get those cars either out of storage and put them back into service or take them out of storage and scrap
1: them. There's some talk about infrastructure uh, in the government right now about the possibility of you know, that being one of the next waves. And, and that could have an impact on the, on the rail car market. But boy, that's, that's, a, that's always been a fairly big leap. So I think we're, we're kind of going to be running on our own for a while, I think, as much as people would like it to be different. And I think it's going to cause a, a you know, fairly it's, – it's, the effects are going to be profound for a lengthy period of time. I'd, th-
3: I'd like to comment, comment on the infrastructure in, in investment. If, if the government does an infrastructure bill – there, that clearly has a lot of positive throughout the full transportation system because you have a lot of bulk commodities that are going to need to get need to get moved. The bigger issue is if a bill does go through, what does the timing look like? And I think it's it's it you don't get that impact until twenty twenty one at the at the earliest because I don't think they can move that through the system fast enough to have an impact on, on 2020. So at that point in time, you have an economy that's already starting to rebound a little bit back into 2021 and get back to normalcy. And then you would have that infrastructure bill potentially having an impact. It's It's unclear of, you know, is that the right timing? Would that be good? Um, I think there's just still a lot of un, unknowns at the at the moment.
2: Now we, we've talked about the uh, the potential infrastructure bill. Now, what about the stimulus bill? We've got up to two trillion. It could go higher, uh, given that the stimulus packages are tilted more toward economic stability or even directly toward economic stability, with little or no contribution to uh, expansion what what does that potentially mean
0: it, it's really just it's not a stimulus in the traditional way you think of a stimulus in terms of generating additional economic activity what it's really trying to do is provide income replacement for folks who are furloughed or laid off so it's really uh, just about keeping consumption at the levels that were normal before this happened so there really isn't a a Stimulative effect over and above what you would normally uh, have seen, what folks' normal purchasing power would have been if not for uh, this coronavirus uh, crisis that we're all in. So, we don't see it having a huge positive effect, you know, above trend for, for, for volumes. It's really just going to keep us where we were, which up to this point, a lot of the rail volumes were just holding in line with their five year averages. So, it'll just sort of hopefully get us to those levels it's not going to be something that jumps us up above the way uh, the way you saw with the tax cuts you know the way you saw where that was sort of an economic sugar high it's not going to be that same effect this time around
2: okay yeah Todd, Todd's absolutely
1: correct it's really not stimulus it's really a lifeline for people to try to keep them from sinking beneath the water line in, in what is obviously shaping up to be the, the biggest financial and economic crisis that that most people are going to be able to remember in their lifetimes. You know, stimulus has to come after the fact, right? This is just the the finger in the dam to keep us from drowning.
3: The other issue surrounding this is what the Fed action was. And so we can't just discount that in a way, we have to kind of put that in context. So the Federal Reserve has gone out, they've lowered interest rates, At the time, I didn't think that was going to be helpful. I still don't think that lowering interest rates in and of itself at this point in time is overly helpful. The big concern that I think that they did address for me was more about liquidity, right? Is there going Mm -hmm. to be liquidity in the market? And so they went out and they started buying up assets. And so now they have a huge amount of assets on, on their books. And in essence, they're dumping money into the marketplace. And so therefore, it creates an environment that is more liquid than um, uh, than it could be, uh, in the sense of I think that this is a good thing, but what we don't know is are the are the people that have the cash now, are they going to lend it? And because you add in the two trillion dollar bill there, I think that gives the banks more protection on the back end to say, Let's start let's start lending. So I think those two actions together by and large will keep liquidity in the market and allow businesses to keep borrowing and to keep stay afloat if that goes away and a bunch of businesses have to close the doors, then all bets are all bets are off. Mm -hmm. But what they're trying to do is keep it so that we can turn that corner. Um, And so I, I feel at least they've been trying to do that. And the, the two pronged approach for the moment has been, has been helpful.
2: Final thought here. Um, the railroads of course have been around for close to 200 years. They've uh, survived. Uh, well, uh, world war one uh, the, 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 f- the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu as it was called in 1918 uh, World War II, where, the, where they were pressed into service and, and there was a lot of deferred maintenance uh, after that, You know, during that, which of course impacted them afterwards. Then the highways were built and the trucks and the air, air, airplanes came along. And of course, this crushing uh, regulation, which really wasn't lifted until 1980. So as an inter- industry, the railroads have survived a lot. I, we'll get through this crisis, but what, what is different about this crisis than previous ones did you think
3: the way that energy is being harnessed and used within the US has transformed how the rail business is going to look 20 years from now we're already seeing a drop off in coal that is going to continue and in fact we, we anticipate that to accelerate even faster than we had, what had had anticipated now you start looking at the pricing of what's going on with crude crude and what that impact is on the sand business, on crude movements all the way through fine um, sorry uh, uh, petroleum products that move down into, into Mexico. all of that is is going crazy. but you typically had a floor in there because you had a base for energy and coal coal movements and that has that has fundamentally changed over the last several years. Now the railroads are going to have to follow the economic cycles much more closely than they had before. They don't have that safeguard on the downside and that's where I that's the thing that I think has fundamentally changed. Todd,
0: no I think the railroads are already in transition and so that leaves them a little bit flat-footed in terms of responding to a crisis. You know, they were already in transition with PSR that we talked about a little bit with some of the changes, you know, toward intermodal and then changing uh, how they viewed intermodal as as they integrated PSR. And so they're already dealing with all of these changes, and they're going to have to learn how to adapt to change. The railroads historically have been a very slow-to-change, slow-to-adapt industry. And I think what they're going to learn based on how quickly this crisis came up is that they have to move and react and innovate a lot quicker than they ever have in the past in order to find new lines of business, find new ways to serve shippers business. It's not not going to be okay just to do the same thing you've always done that you could do when you had baseload coal business, when you had baseload grain Mm -hmm. business. Yeah, You don't have that anymore. And so the game, the game has changed, and railroads, I think, need to be a lot quicker on their feet than maybe they have had to have been historically.
2: David, final thoughts? And,
1: and all of that comes together, Bill, because this crisis specifically is, is so much uh, more widely ubiquitous and impactful than anything that we have really seen uh, since probably the the Second World War. And and that is really, I don't think we're prepared for that in any capacity. We we didn't see it coming. Uh, you, know, you can read all of the 2020 studies that said, you know, we weren't prepared for a global epidemic, but nobody saw this coming to a degree that uh, it, it is going to be present in our lifetimes. And because of that, the response mechanisms, the tools that are available to companies to respond were moving in a negative direction from what reality was. So the railroads were trying to Shrink assets, shrink number of employees, uh, improve their operating ratio, which is really a, 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 the opposite of what you would need to be doing to prepare for this kind of a crisis. And unfortunately, I think that's going to just slow down the process of recovery for them and just make it more challenging in the short term.
2: Okay. Well, Eric and Todd and David, I'd like to thank the three of you uh, very much for uh, for joining us. A uh, lot of insight and. Uh, We'll, uh, we'll have to see where this, where this goes. We're keeping a very close watch on it. And, uh, of course, your, uh, your input uh, is, uh, is extremely valuable uh, for me personally. I uh, wish you all the best. Uh, stay safe and stay healthy and, uh, and keep at it. Thank you very much.